The scripture reading this morning is taken from Psalm 100, and this is what it says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. You may be seated. Well, thanks so much for having me here with you guys this morning. I feel like after four months, the training wheels are off just enough for Brett to allow me to come here. And uh, it's, a re- it's really a delight to be here. I was telling the, the first gathering this morning that Heather and I, when I was at seminary, we prayed and we hoped and we dreamed that we might be able to serve at a church like Christ City in Vancouver. And God just answered our prayers. We're so thankful to be here. We're thankful to serve you guys and to serve uh, the Kitts Neighborhood Church. Um, but uh, would you bow with me in a word of prayer? We need to ask the Lord for some help as we begin. Well, Father, we, we come before you right now uh, as your people. Uh, as the sheep of your pasture. Lord, we're humble and we're dependent upon you. Lord, we ask that you would work by your Holy Spirit to impress the truths of your word into our hearts. Lord, that we move, we'd be moved from a place of feeling maybe like, like we have to be grat- grateful, we have to be worshipers, to a place where we realize we get to be worshipers. Oh Lord, glorify Jesus Christ. Glorify yourself for, for our good and your eternal glory. In his name we pray. Amen. So as we begin, I've got a question for you this morning. Is gratitude important? It's something that's broadly thought of as important. Our culture today thinks that it's important. We have both, on the one hand, uh, secular studies and academic research that's showing us in increasing ways that gratitude is something that's important for us as human beings. There's actual benefits that are measurable to being grateful. And on the other hand, you have more of like the pseudosciences and the spiritual realities, the Gwyneth Paltrow's, the uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's, and the Oprah Winfrey's who are practicing gratefulness and gratitude as kind of a, a non-Christian spiritual practice. Oprah is an example. As one, uh, one example, she kept a, a gra- gratitude-filled mindfulness journal for five years. And in that journal, as one example, one entry read, uh, for one day, today, I sat on the bench and the sunshine, and ate cold melon. Thanks. But what we see from this, from both the academic and kind of the pseudoscience area, we see that gratitude is an important thing, broadly conceived of even in our culture. But here's the question. Is it easy? Have you ever struggled to be thankful? I mean, I have. If you're like me, you've struggled with this all the time because there's lots of moments in your life when Gratefulness is the furthest thing from your mind because all you can see is your health problems. All you can see are your family problems and your relationship problems, your finance problems, or here in Vancouver, the weather problems. Right after a couple weeks go by and it's been pouring rain constantly, like, man, why is Nirvana on repeat in my mind? Why am I so depressed? It's easy to complain, it's easy to become grumbling, right? And cynical, just depressed people as you look around. You know, thanks Oprah, but when the weather stinks and the bench isn't there and, you know, the sun's not shining and I don't have cold melon in my hands, what am I supposed to do? Just make it up? Conjure it up? Come from nowhere? 
Or am I supposed to follow some Buddhist practice and just reimagine the world around me? Pull some psychological sleight of hand so that I see that my suffering isn't suffering at all, but it's good. You know, if pleasant circumstances and mental trickery are our only routes to gratitude, we will never be truly grateful. We'll grasp for gratitude, but everything we take hold of, it'll, it'll shift in our sands, it'll slip through our fingertips. We won't be able to hold on to it and be permanently grateful. We'll be disappointed. So here's what we need to hear from the revelation of God and his word this morning. Because the Bible instructs us to be thankful, yes, but the Bible grounds our thankfulness and our gratitude in something beyond ourselves. And an eternal God who is holy and who is good and who loves us and who is personal. The Bible offers a path to gratitude that's different than anywhere around us because it grounds gratitude, not in us, not in our circumstances, but in a good God. So if you're here this morning and you're feeling that you're, you're just in that place I described earlier, you're just struggling in the vortex of your circumstances and yourself. And you're feeling like, man, like life kind of sucks. I want to invite you right now to, to hear with me the words of Psalm 100 and to see outside of yourself, to see outside of just a desperate attempt to find a silver lining on suffering, to see a God who is good and who is constant and who is there for you right now so you can have thanks and genuine praise and worship for him. And as we look at Psalm 100, our outline's simple. We've just divided or I've divided it into two commands. In verses 1 to 3, we're commanded to worship as this response of gratitude. And in verses 4 to 5, we're commanded to give thanks. So really simply, worship in verses 1 to 3, give thanks in verses 4 to 5. But even as we begin, we need to realize that God never uh, just gives us these commands out of nowhere. Even in this psalm, we see that God is a God who has every right to command us, but he doesn't just command us, he reasons with us for our good. And he shows us that there's a reason for these commands. There's a reason to be grateful. There's a reason to give thanks. There's a reason to worship. So each of our points this morning, worship and give thanks, will be followed up in it respectively with these incredible reasons of why we are to obey the commands. So look first with me at the first command to worship. Read verses 1 and 2. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth, Serve the Lord with gladness and come into his presence with singing. Do you sense the joy in these verses? These are heartfelt, joyful commands to worship God. But there's a, probably a, a few of you in the crowd who've maybe noticed that I've pulled a sleight of hand of my own and you're grumbling. You're saying, I thought you said this psalm's about Thanksgiving, Brent, and your first point's about worship. Well, there's a reason for that. And, uh, and actually, I'll direct you to the, the title of the psalm. Even the title of the psalm itself uh, that's in our Bibles is that it's a psalm for giving thanks. So we can be confident the psalm's about giving thanks. But there's more to this here. Because this first point, I think, is about worship in these first two verses. But it's because the psalmist knows that true thanksgiving, true thanksgiving will always express itself in worship. And maybe you'll also complain to me that, hey, look, Brian, you know, I, sure, but the word worship's not in those two, first two verses. Look, I read them. I saw that. It's not there. But we need to realize that there's three elements that are there that are just three elements that broadly speak together of worship. The elements of making a joyful noise, the element of serving the Lord with gladness, and the element of 
uh, singing and coming into God's presence. So let's unpack these three things to see what this worship is all about. So first, we've got a joyful noise. I mean, that sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? Just make a joyful noise. But it's not too hard to understand. And the first thing we need to realize is what it's not. Joyful noise is not the special contribution in our gatherings of the tone deaf. And that's really good news for guys like Brett, right? Because he, he can worship God too, and we, and we can worship God too, even if we can sing. Joyful noise is just a sound of rejoicing, broadly speaking. It's a sound that follows, he shoots, he scores. That's what we're talking about here. You know, I get to experience this rejoicing, though, in our community in Kitsilano, and it's, it's awesome because in our worship gatherings, I stand in the front next to Fred. And Fred can sing, but though he can sing, that's not all that he does in our worship gatherings. He also shouts. He also repeats back the words that are, are on the screen for all of us uh, to, to sing to. He repeats them back just with shouts of thanksgiving and praise to God. He's making loud noises, and not even all of them are weird. But there's something cool here because joyful noise, I don't think, just means the joyful noise that's made in our gatherings. It's also the noise that follows you at the close of our gatherings outside of these doors and into the lobby. As you reflect on the grace and the goodness of God to us in Christ Jesus together. And you worship him. And, you, and sometimes I think the first gatherings have to be shooed out, right? It's like, hey guys, uh, you got to stop worshiping and making joyful noises because the second and the third gatherings are beginning, Right? So joyful noises are this expression of praise. And similarly, the third element of worship, we're going to skip the second one right away. In the second half of verse 2, this, this third element is the command to express praise as well, but it's a little different. Look at it with me. The third element here of worship is to come into his presence with singing. True worship as expression of real gratitude delights to gather together as the people of God, to give thanks to God in the presence of God with singing to God. That's what we get to do. This is really just a description of what it means to go to church. To go to church and to sing praises with joy to the God who has given us all these incredible things. It's to rejoice that we have been brought with Jesus' blood. And these joyful noises and these singing, they're similar, right? There's both these expressions of, of verbal or, or noise-making praise to God and shouting out to him. But the middle element, that, that second element of worship is a little bit different, isn't it? Look at the first line of verse 2. We've looked at the first, we look at the second, or third, we're going to look at the second right here, sorry. Serve the Lord with gladness. You know, this is, where, this is where the rubber meets the road for true worshipers of God. Because isn't it true that, that even, I mean, you may have talked to somebody who's like this. They, they, there's lots of people who like to come to a worship gathering because it's positive. They like to come, they like to sing songs, they enjoy the environment. But, but, True worship is always expressed, not merely in singing, but in sacrificial service to God. And if you think about it, this makes a, natu a lot of natural sense to us. So if you'll bear with me, if you'll accept that worship is really just loving something in an ultimate way, then we see that this makes sense because we know that the guy down the road who has the Bentley he worships the Bentley, and he loves the Bentley. And we can test, we can test his genuine affection for that Bentley and his, his worship of that Bentley by whether or not he's willing to serve that Bentley. Does he wax the thing? Does he polish it? He probably has his people polish it for him, right? He's got a Bentley. But he's taking care of it. And by contrast, you can look at my car and realize I don't worship my car when you open the door and you smell what's inside, 
right? And you look under the seat and you're like, there's a lot of fries under here, man. And little penguins and uh, chewy animals because Aryans throwing stuff all over the place and I don't clean up. But for you and I, you can test the genuineness of our joyful noises and enthusiastic singing by our willingness to serve God. Are we willing to serve God? And if you're thinking you can cheat the system and just go through the motions of service, you can't. Because there's this inconvenient little two-word ending to that section. Look at it with me in verse 2. Serve the Lord, how? With gladness. Man, I need to hear that. Probably you, like me, are sometimes in places where you just want to go through the motions. But the Lord asks us here to, to pay attention to our hearts and to serve not by going through the rote process, but to serve with gladness. To serve with gladness. Man, if you serve with grumbling only, I think you need to realize you're not serving the Lord. For people to serve the Lord, we need to serve him with joy as those who've been touched by him. Man. You know, here at Christ City, you can discern, I think, serious and genuine worship of God, not merely by enthusiastic worship in the gatherings, but also by the way that you see those worshipers follow up their worship with their hands raised with service in this community, service to the glory of God, service in all kinds of ways. And the implications here are pretty awesome then, because if worship, if worship includes service, that means that when you go and serve in the nursery, you're worshiping. It means that when you serve on the cafe team, you're worshiping. It means when you're part of the connect or the host teams or any other thing in this community, you're serving and you're worshiping God. Those things are not at odds. And here's the thing. Everybody here in this community is an essential part of the body of Christ given gifts to serve the body of Christ. Don't think that you can be someone who just comes in and doesn't serve. No, no. You're, you're here to offer something important that we all need. If you don't know what that is, we'd love to talk to you. Talk to your community group leaders. Talk to the service team leaders. Talk to the elders and the staff here. And they'd love to point you and show you how you can worship God with your actions and serve him. We'd love to get you serving. So worship consists here of these three elements. But there's something surprising in these verses. Because who's the psalmist commanded to do these things? Who's the person, who, who are the people that he's commanded? Look at the end of verse 1. All the earth. The psalmist doesn't say, Christ City, South Vancouver, worship the Lord. The psalmist doesn't say, some people somewhere worship the Lord. The psalmist says, all people everywhere worship the Lord. Worship the Lord. Listen, thanksgiving and worship aren't things that God communicates to us as optional. They're not optional. He doesn't say, you three, you two over here, come and worship me. He says, everybody everywhere worship me. Yet, maybe we don't feel like we want to. Here's the good news. Even when our hearts are furthest away from wanting to obey this command to worship, God reasons with us. And he shows us that the reason for the command isn't arbitrary, it's compelling. So why should we worship him as expressions of our gratitude? Look at the reason the psalmist provides in verse 3. This is the reason. Know that the Lord, he's God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the first reason the psalmist gives us 
to worship the Lord is because the Lord is God. It's because the Lord is God. And to say that the Lord is God is to say that the object of our worship then is not an idea. The object of our worship isn't a theological proposition. It's not a philosophical concept. It's a person with a name who has revealed himself as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look again at verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. You see those four capitalized letters, L-O-R-D? It's a hint. The the translators are showing us that, that those letters, whenever they're capitalized in the first part of our Bibles in the Old Testament, they're indicating that the personal name of God is used. And you've heard that name before. It's been translated or pronounced differently in English as Yahweh or as Jehovah. And here in verse 3, the psalmist is saying in absolute terms that Yahweh, or the God of the Bible and no one else, is God. But we should ask, okay, I get it, but why is it good news, right? How is, that, how is that good news for us? Why should that cause me to give thanks? Well, it's like this. Have you ever been, or do you remember back, I hope you don't do this today still, but if you, do you remember back to when you were a kid on the playground? Right? And you're, you're maybe, I don't, know, I don't know if it's a little boy thing exclusively, maybe it's a little girl thing too, but you're arguing with your buddies. And you're like, hey man, you know, my dad, I mean, he's stronger than your dad. You know, and, it, and it's like, no, no, no. Hey buddy, my, my dad is richer than your dad. And whatever feels under discussion, you know, it's important to come out on top. Right? And if you get frustrated, you kind of resort to whatever, dude, my dad could beat your dad up. Right? You're, you're trying to come out and say, hey, my dad is the guy. But Psalm 100, I think, And saying that the Lord is God is the kids on the playground making the ultimate declaration. The Lord is my God. My dad is the king. It's the mic drop right there. No one can challenge the Lord. No one has his authority. No one has his power. And if the Lord is our God, hear this, then we can be absolutely confident in his care for us. Because nothing and nobody can stand against our God. This is good news for us who know the Lord as our God. But there's something also, I think, fundamentally corrective about that truth for us today as human beings. Because when the psalmist says that the Lord is God, he's saying that that God is at the center of it all, not you. He's saying, you take a back seat to God. It's about him. It's not about you. We need to feel the weight of that claim. We need to let it reorient our sinful hearts that want to exert themselves as if they were God. God is God, and the implication is that we're not. And that's a good thing, because to know that the Lord is God is to be freed of you trying to get others to worship you. It's not going to work out very well. Maybe it works out for a little bit in some really sick, twisted kind of way, but it won't last. It's to be freed of living like Dwight in the office, right? Always trying to say, hey, look, man, I'm the assistant regional manager when really he's just the assistant to the regional manager, right? Like we need to be free to know our place. You're a created being and you're created to worship the God who created you. And you will only ever, hear this, guys, I'm pleading with you, you'll only ever be discontent and ungrateful until you, invase, until you embrace the fact that you're a creature, not the creator. Know that the Lord, he is God, not you, and worship him. You know, still, many of us 
here in this room, we might go along with that, actually. Maybe we've grown up in the church. We're like, yeah, okay, God's God. I got that part. Uh, but we wonder whether that means anything else. We think of him then as this, this stern God, this distant God, maybe. He's God, but it's not a very caring situation. But that's not right at all. Because there's no one kinder or more tender or more caring than our God. Look at the rest of verse 3. It says, And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is countercultural to be sure. No one in our society, I don't think, takes comfort in belonging to somebody else. Is that true? No one takes comfort in belonging to someone else. But that's because no one in our society is God in a way where this love and affection and God-like attributes and kindness are, are true for them in the way that they're true for God. That they're true for them in the way that belonging to them is good and morally right. In our relationship with God, the testimony of Scripture is abundantly clear. We are His. He is God. And that's a good thing. We are His. He made us. We belong to Him. But the psalmist doesn't simply say that we belong to God. He also uses the imagery of a shepherd to communicate God's care for us as our God. Look at verse 3. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. And I get that unless you're from New Zealand this morning, the imagery of sheep don't really stand out to you. You know, like, okay, it doesn't really ring any bells for me. You know, uh, on the way here this morning, I didn't pass any uh, sheep fields. I don't know, pastures, I guess. Uh, I, all, the only thing that people really shepherd in Kitsilano are uh, kombucha scobies, right? Kombucha scobies. And there's a lot of shepherding of those. But for people like you and me who don't really get shepherding, if you don't know what those are, go and ask your friend from Kits. For people like you and, and me who don't really get shepherding, we can read other passages from the Bible that are about shepherding to help flesh out this picture for us. And the best shepherding passage of all is in John chapter 10. Because in John chapter 10, we hear from Jesus, who is the good shepherd. Because Jesus is actually the God of Psalm 100 verse 3. And he's a God who's now taken on human flesh and the second person of the Trinity. And he's come and dwelt among us so that we see that the two-dimensional image that was in Psalm 100. And we see it in three dimensions now in John after Jesus has come. So look at John 10 and just look at verses 11 and also 14 with me to see what Jesus shows us about what it means to be a shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. We need to recognize here this picture of Jesus as the good shepherd. I mean, it stands in contrast to the industrial pictures of farming that we have in our minds. You know what I'm talking about? Like all those chickens in the little cages, right? And there's, it's impersonal, it's mechanical. When we read these words and we see this here, we just see that God's shepherding love of his people, it's not mechanical and it's not distant. It's deeply intimate. Jesus shows us God's shepherding heart by coming to us, by God leaving eternity and perfection and coming down to us, being present with us and knowing us intimately as his sheep and his people. And not just that, but then by laying his life down for you and I as a sacrifice so that we can be forgiven and brought near to him. So when we read these words in Psalm 100 verse 3, we're his and we're the sheep of his pasture, we ought to be blown away that the Lord, who is God, isn't just sovereign and powerful. 
He's also intimate and caring as a shepherd who's rescued us by coming to us in this intimate way in Jesus Christ as our shepherd. So worship him, for the Lord is God. So we are commanded to worship, and we're given this reason for worship, but we're also commanded in our second point this morning to give thanks. Turn with me to verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. This is just a picture of God's people coming into God's presence in order to give thanks to him. And that's important because I think in our culture, when we talk about gratitude, the whole to him part is like optional. You know, you can be thankful, but to no one in particular. Do you guys know who Rafi is? Rafi is a Canadian country or Canadian folk singer. He's written a lot for kids. He's really famous. And he has a song. Now that I got a two-year-old, we kind of go through all the old kids' songs, right? And we have... We've been listening to Rafi, and he has a song just called Thanks a Lot. And he's teaching all Canadian kids everywhere to give thanks for the trees and the forests and the, the sweet things out there in the world to nobody. It's really weird. It's just like an anthem of thanksgiving to nothing. But the Bible commands our thanks not to nothing, but to the God who is the giver of every good gift. Now, for the people of God in the Old Testament, they had to go somewhere to do this. They had to leave their farms and their businesses and pack up the old donkey from the shed and head out to Jerusalem and to the temple. And then even when they got there, they could only come so far and so close to the temple, to the presence of God. Because the temple was built this way with this, the presence of God in a special way in the very center and a series of courts outside of that. So if you were not a Jew, you could come to this outer court. If you were a woman who was a Jew, you'd come a little closer in. If you were a Jewish man, you'd come closer in still. But the presence of God in the center of that temple was reserved for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement to enter into. Now contrast that with the way that contrast that with the way that the New Testament teaches us now that Jesus has come how we come to God through him. Look at Hebrews 10, 19-22 and see with me the way that we don't come then as Christians through Jesus to the outer courts. We don't come to the courts of the women. We don't come to the courts of the Jewish men. We enter into the holy of holies because of Jesus. Look at Hebrews 19, 10 verses 19-22 with me. Sorry, just 10, 19, and 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... Other translations will say to enter the holy of holies, the very central part of that temple is the image that's used. How? By the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near then with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Guys, we as Christ City Church have access that Israel could only dream of. We have full assurance that you can come to God. How? By trusting in Jesus by being washed by his blood, by having his spirit put within you so that you can commune with God through prayer anywhere, not by packing up your donkey. We see here is that verse 4 commands us to give thanks. And it shows us that we have incredible access to his presence, to God's presence, to give it. So let's do it. So we're given the second command to give thanks. And just like the command to worship, though, there's a reason that's provided for us here. So we have this incredible access, but God doesn't just simply command it. He provides a reason for us. Turn with me to verse 5 and see the reason to give thanks. For, because, the Lord is good. 
His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. We ought to give thanks, writes the psalmist, because the Lord is good. We give thanks because the Lord is good. And how do we know his goodness? How can we trust him? Well, look at the last two lines in the psalm. His goodness is expressed in a particular way. He writes, His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. That's the reason. That's the language of commitment. That's the language of holding fast. That's the language of never turning away from the object of love ever. Recently, I've been reading a lot to my son from the Jesus Storybook Bible. And actually, I really love this because in the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones translates these words in a particular way. And she paraphrases them and she says that this is what's being talked about when we talk about God's steadfast love and faithfulness. She calls it God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I mean, it's simple, but it's beautiful. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's the love of God for us in Christ. Where can you find love like that in this world? Where can you go? If you want to imitate it, who are you going to look to? There's no one else but this God. I mean, compare God's love with ours here for a second. You know, we fall out of love, right? I mean, that's, that's a thing in our culture. We're kind of proud of it. We get offended and we move away from the people that we're in relationship with. When we've been wronged, we show that our love's conditional and we don't forgive. We love hard people maybe, but only if they're not too hard. We love our friends, but only if they don't become burdens. We love conditionally. But even the greatest love that you might have experienced in this world from another human being is limited because that human being will eventually die and that love will end. But no matter how short no matter how problematic, no matter how impermanent our love is as human beings, God's love is different. It's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking always and forever love. Or in the words of the psalmist, his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. It's unchangeable. It's rooted in his character. But we need to recognize something more about this. These two words, steadfast love and faithfulness, are two Hebrew words, more words in English. I didn't count them, sorry. They aren't just they aren't just poetic hyperbole here about God's enduring love. They're words that are grounded in history and relationship with sinful people. When you see steadfast love and faithfulness, you need to understand that they represent a long history of grace towards people who don't deserve it. You need to understand that they represent the history of this people called Israel that began with this guy named Abraham and the way that God saved him and his descendants and then they went to Egypt. And then a long time after that, he saved them from Egypt. And despite their rebellion again and again and again against him, he kept on moving forward to use them for his purpose of bringing us a savior, Jesus Christ. Not because we deserved it, but because of this, because of God's own steadfast love and his faithfulness. When you think of God's goodness and his steadfast love and faithfulness, you need to think about the way that, that that speaks to you and I, who are sinners and who are desperately need, in need of a God who can forgive and love us despite all the things that we've done to rebel against him. And when you see these words, steadfast love and faithfulness, you need to understand that this God, who is the Lord, he didn't love us at a distance either. 
God showed his steadfast love and faithfulness in the most incredible way when he left eternity, when he left perfect fellowship and joy in the presence of the Trinity. And the second person came to earth as an infant, a fragile baby, not to be worshipped and served as he deserved, but to become a servant of all, to serve you and I with humble, steadfast love and faithfulness through his life and through his death on the cross in the place of us. That's what we're talking about here. Listen to these verses about God's steadfast love and the way that they're expressed to us through Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Romans 5 verse 8 is another important verse, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Then 1 Peter 2 Verses 24 to 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the thing. Sometimes you and I look at a sovereign God who is powerful, and we struggle to see his goodness. Right? We see his holiness, and we see his justice, and it makes us afraid. We think, how can this how can this God be good? How am I supposed to give thanks to this God with that kind of power? The cross is the answer. You know, Richard, uh, Richard Dawkins apparently said one time that if you did the hard work of proving to him that God was real, that was only part of the battle. The harder work was to prove to him that God was good. But Richard Dawkins could only say that because he didn't understand the cross. At the cross, we see with perfect clarity that our powerful God, yes, he's powerful, yes, the Lord is God, but he is no tyrant. He is good. He's a sacrificial servant king who came to us and laid his life down. That old hymn, do you guys know this old hymn? And can it be, and can it be, how, how can it be that thou, my God, wouldst die for me? At the cross, we see that the Lord is good. At the cross, we see his steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations, to people like you and I who desperately need it because we're sinful. The psalmist commands our gratitude in these verses. And God commands our thanksgiving to all people of the earth. But all of our thanksgiving is undergirded and given the foundation of this good God who is the Lord and who is good, and who is faithful, and whose steadfast love endures forever. There is reason to obey him and to worship him. So thank him. You know, this psalm, I think, has this incredible simplicity to it, doesn't it? It's not very complicated. It's short. It's concise. But the ideas that are in it are lofty ideas. These are big ideas. And my challenge to you this morning is don't, let, don't just let them pass you by. Meditate on them. Think about them. Understand that your God is God and he is good. Understand that that he's brought you near into his very presence by the blood of Jesus so that you get to worship him and you get to give thanks to him. And here's my question. If that's true of you, do people around you know it? Do people around you know it? Do people see you as somebody who gives thanks? Or do they see you as somebody who's a grumbler, 
and somebody who's cynical, somebody who's quick to point out all the flaws. The church, I think, should be the last place on earth where the gathered people of God get together and are cynical. We have every reason more than anyone else anywhere to be thankful, to be full of worship and praise. So if you're struggling with gratitude this morning, let me challenge you. Maybe it's because you've been focusing on the wrong things. Maybe it's because you've been looking at the, un, the, looking at the changing, impermanent, unreliable things in your life, and you're not looking to see the good God who is your Lord. Here's my challenge. Lift your eyes from yourself. Lift your, lift your eyes from your circumstance and look to God. Look to the one who has given you every good gift. Look to the one who has saved you in Jesus Christ and worship him and let your heart be transformed from cynicism to joy and praise. The Lord is good. The Lord is God and he is good. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.